How are you? <laughs> I'm not sure. How about yourself? Yeah, it's like Yeah. They're they're marching down Broadway again. I'm I'm back at Jim's. So let's see, the curfew's eight o'clock tonight. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that will help. I don't I know. Hope. hope so. Is it is it peaceful right now? Yes. Uh huh. Hey, Mary Beth. Yeah, I mean, after last night, really. Let's see more. Ah, okay. So we're recording already. Thank you, Emily, wherever you are. And let's begin with the chance. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path to omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. Just like the six ornaments and two supreme ones who beautify our world, you are their equal in their mastery of compassion, learning, and realization. Yet you practice hidden in the forest and sacred solitude, Longchenpa, who perfected samsara, nirvana, state of dharmakaya. Dreamers there, stainless light at your feet, I pray, grant your blessings so that I may realize the natural state, the true nature of mind. You're here. So we just have a few couple of little things to get through tonight. Not, not much. It should be very easy to get to just breeze through all this. So uh, maybe fasten your seat belts and strap on your helmets and uh, just relax, lean, lean back and 
and let go. So we're in the chapter called The Dwelling in Neither of the Two Extremes, which is chapter 10. Um, it's the full name is the, the view that dwells in neither of the two extremes, the wisdom whereby the nature of the ground, Mother Earth, is realized. And we're on page 119, stanza uh, 16, and just to review briefly, we started out by this chapter by uh, um, stating the empty nature of all phenomena and how everything um, is not separate from mind, but not within mind, and not of mind, but not external to mind. He used the analogy of a mirror, and then he talked about three levels of analysis that we undergo in working towards understanding of the situation. Initially, there's no analysis. We just accept whatever appears. Then at the second stage, analysis yields the... Uh, the variety of, of uh, multiple appearances that have the, the three marks of impermanent suffering and uh, essencelessness. And finally, in the last final analysis, there's the inconceivable nature of the ultimate reality that is beyond uh, existence of either of the four, of any of the four extremes. And uh, then he used the, met the metaphor of, of uh, certain metaphors to show the, the illusory nature of appearances and uh, uh, extrapolated this to all the six realms and uh, stated that ignorance is the cause for beings to wander in these realms, so on stanza eight, and uh, that the antidote that was actually the end of seven, and the antidote is wisdom, the understanding of the two truths. And the method to achieve this is to cut the root of mind, and to do that in stanza 10, first we examine the mind, then in stanza 11, we don't find the mind, and we let go, we just let be. <coughs> and we understand that the seeker and that which is sought are not different, and uh, thereby we understand in stanza 13 this contradictory nature of the mind, the secret nature of the mind of being empty, yet apparent, yet being there. And upon that, we give up the idea of being able to find it at all. In stanza 14, and stanza 15, he entered the, he introduced the notion of how is it that this ignorance comes about? The mind is stirred up by ideas which are like chaff, agitated by distractions like a gusting wind, and there's no access to this indescribable, ineluctable nature. But if you rest correctly in the pure, accomplished mind beyond arriving in the part where there's nothing to remove, to which there's nothing to be added, if you rest in primal wisdom, all creating free from stain, you will then behold this nature. So how do we rest like that? That's the big question, right? So 16, he talks about um, how it is completely beyond conception, this nature. So first, is we have to give up any uh, attempt to conceptualize it or understand it through the conceptual mind. And uh, in doing that, uh, 
to help us do that. He described this nature of mind as being like a space station that's out there in space and has uh, huge gardens and waterfalls and forests, just like hanging in the middle of the sky, like in that movie. Um, and um, and, uh, and because of that, it's futile to even try to find the nature of mind in stanza 18. Uh, that uh, any attempts to identify the mind through, through things like analysis and meditation and concentration do no more than to spoil it. In 19, he tells us, therefore, to abandon all such attempts. It gives us different ways of uh, abandoning. I in the right stanza, let's see. Yes, in the mind itself, the nature that is primordial, pure primordially, there are no obscurations and no antidotes. There's nothing to remove and nothing to acquire. So leave aside conceptual targets. There's no inside, there's no outside, there's no object apprehended and no subject apprehending. Therefore, give up clinging. You re cannot recognize this nature saying this. So pare away all assumptions. There's no attaining it and there's no non-attaining it. Therefore, abandon hope and fear. And so this basically, this whole chapter is all about uh, uh, understanding a conceptual, developing a conceptual understanding of the view of the nature that's beyond conceptuality. And one of the main aspects of developing this view of the nature that's beyond conceptuality is to understand that we can't understand it through concepts. And so uh, partially that has descriptions of um, how to try to understand it through conceptual mind, how and how one will fail in understanding it conceptually, and then exhortations to give up the conceptual attempt, the attempt to understand it conceptually, just sort of over and over again as a way of trying to loosen up our mind and make it ready for meditation practice, make it ready for going further on the path by um, prodding the mind uh, to, to look into its nature, to try to understand, realize that it can't and let go, just sort of over and over again. So it's a bit uh, repetitive in that way. And uh, so in 20, within awareness, never stirring from the ground, all arisings due to various conditions naturally subside as soon as they appear like ripples on water. And they're one like Dharmakaya, so understanding the ultimate nature. Um, and that this, this uh, experience of not finding is the freedom from conceptual elaborations where there's no agent and no object. And through this one then comes to the actual primordial state, which is like space, immaculate. And uh, in this stanza, Longchenpa seems to be proclaiming his own achievement of that, and his own enlightenment, using this phrase that's common in the uh, great perfection tradition called the exhaustion of phenomena. We've heard of this 
phrase of exhaustion used in relationship to the mind when we exhaust the effort to understand the two truths as inseparable. And here we have uh, that applied to reality as a whole the exhaustion of phenomena. Phenomena themselves are exhausted. Uh, What this implies is that we create phenomena. And when our mind is exhausted, phenomena become exhausted. Which goes back to this whole way of viewing phenomena and mind as not being separate, not being one, but not being separate. Stanza 23, um, the certainty that the path has been completed. I have no further questions. The ground and root of mind are gone. There's no goal, no clinging. Instead, there's an all-embracing evenness, openness, relaxedness, equality. So these four, these four qualities that he lists, uh, he goes through in great detail in one of his seven precious treasures, the precious treasure of the way of abiding. He goes through these four qualities of evenness, openness, relaxedness, and equality. And if you think they all sound sort of the same here, you'll probably continue to think that all four of them are the same when you read those. <laughs> Sorry, just kidding. It's just purely due to my own ignorance that I experienced that. Where was I? Now that I've realized that I sing my song, so this little celebration of thine, and he, uh, now, and having revealed it, now I am departed. The departing is uh, an analogy for going beyond, going beyond duality. Um, in 24, he gives instructions. Once again, what to do, just watch. Watch whatever appears. See their unoriginated quality. See that they're, they are one and the same. Their appearance and their reflection in the mind. Um, experience the primordial purity of the mind like the sky and the clouds. Watch the consciousness discerning the appearances. The mind is like the sky beyond assertion and negation. And just as in the sky, the clouds take shape and then dissolve. They come and go without impacting the sky in the slightest, which stays completely pure and immaculate. This is the state of primordial enlightenment where defilements and conceptuality never touches the mind, the nature of the enlightened mind. Uh, let's see, in 26, he talks about the great equality of mind and appearances. Object and the mind itself are not two things. They're one in primal purity. There's no one-sided affirmation or denial. All appearance is devoid of true existence. All arising is by nature empty. Everything is equal and beyond the reference point. And the freedom from extremes in 27, all appearances, various and uncertain are like, and likewise mind cannot be pointed out. In this great state, free of extremes, know this as the great, the natural great perfection. And he applies this to the, the, the uh, 
this equality to a, a number of different phenomena, samsara and nirvana, past, the future, the present, timeless are the three times. All of these are equal. They're all destitute of foundation. All things from the outset are perfect equality. Um, in 29, it establishes or uh, points out the nature of mind as the primal, primordial ground. Samsara and Nirvana are all images reflected in the mind, and the nature of this mind is the great space of Dharma Dhatu, immutable by very nature, unchangeable throughout the three times. This unchanging nature is primordial Nirvana, enlightened state within the ground, Samatha Bhajra. Samatha Bhajra being the Dharmakaya Buddha in the Nyingma tradition. Um, oh, sorry, here. Here's the equality of appearance and emptiness are not divided. This is the primordial state of things. Neither one nor many cannot be conceived beyond the reach of thought. They're all equal, equal in their emptiness, equal in their truth, equal in their falsity, equal in existence, equal in non-existence, equal in transcending every limit. All is one expanse of primordial purity. And he talks about the, the natural emptiness of the imaginary nature, the things that we imagine. All mental imputations are imaginations. They're by nature empty. Names, specific features, truth, uh, as separate from falsity, object and mind, stains or qualities, knower and that which is known. They all have this nature of being non-dual, just like the way a face, the face's form appears within a mirror. The aspects of a thing arise within sense consciousness. So taking them as real, craving and aversion come about, the delusions of samsara, therefore investigate closely. The mind does not go out towards the thing and neither does the aspect of the thing, the aspect being the image that an object uh, image is sort of a, is in terms of uh, visual sense, visual objects project an image. He's saying, do they project an image into our eye? And similarly with uh, sound, do they project an auditory aspect into our mind? Neither of these two happens. The mind doesn't go out to the object the object doesn't come into the mind. They're not two separate things, the object and the consciousness. Henrietta. Is, is this the idea of contact or no contact? It is. It is. That's correct. Thanks. As in the uh, 12 Nadanas. All things are one and the same. Um, let's see how ignorance arises. So then he describes how ignorance arises. All cognitions are the same, not one of them is graspable. Phenomena in mind are not two entities. Oh, sorry, let's see. Anal investigation analysis, there is no need. From the outset, all is one, a sense of openness and freedom. 
its oneness continues, the one taste of equality. It talks about the one, the single taste of this uh, uh, phenomena of equality, this equal nature of all aspects. Samsara and Nirvana are not two. All the rivers in the sea are one. All things are of an equal taste. And in their unborn nature, all are one. It goes through elements, space, assertions, negations, and so on and so forth. In 35, um, he begins the instructions on resting, just how to rest. Phenomena are ungraspable in their identity, but are reflected, but are but reflected images, not different in their nature. They're reflected within this play, which in itself is neither good nor bad. It's beyond the, those dualities. Eric? Yes. Sorry. What What is the Sanskrit word for play here? Do you know? Oh, um... Is it Leela? Yes, thank you. Usually it is, yeah. Okay, thanks. Um, don't grasp at it. Just experience our, our world with this confidence that if, if we don't get caught by it, we'll gradually understand its non-dual nature, its nature of great equality of one taste. So don't grasp but rest at ease. Perceptions which are without certainty arise regarding objects of the senses which themselves cannot be pointed out. You can't actually grasp anything. In one vast open state of letting go, one then finds the fundamental nature of the great natural, natural great perfection. And in summary, therefore, all phenomena are equal in their nature. Be convinced of this, and without clinging, settle in a state beyond the ordinary mind. Exhausted by imposing chains of partiality upon awareness free from partiality, may your mind today find rest. <laughs> so that's the establishment of the view. And now we go back to chapter nine, which has all chapter. Then we dive into all this cool Vajrayana stuff. I hope you guys enjoyed this. Was any of it different than what you've learned before about Vajrayana, or is it just pretty much the same? Hum drum, ho hum, just you know, run of the mill Vajrayana stuff, right? Probably, yeah. So I'll just go through it quickly, since you've all heard all this stuff before, right, Brent? No, just say no. <laughs> so there's a huge amount of no. So there's a huge amount of stuff in here, and uh, he just sort of goes through it. So it's like uh, it's like being um, introduced to this whole incredibly vast and complicated world of Vajrayana understanding and practice, and. Uh, Probably many of you have been introduced in some shape or form to this already. And um, maybe some of you have not. But I hope all of you will join me in the in state of mind of uh, beginner mind, which is that just, you know, uh, having access to uh, another take on it is very helpful each time. 
Now we have that. So, first the generation and perfection stages and their union. Embrace the two stages. When your mind is set, so I'm on page 103, chapter 9. When your mind, it's called the generation of perfection stages. Oh, I already said that. When your mind is set upon uh, supreme enlightenment, embrace the generation of perfection stages of the outer and inner secret mantra. So set upon supreme enlightenment is what? Bodhicitta. Secret mantra has many methods and is free of hardship. That's a little bit of a marketing ploy, by the way. So the goal is just the same. It means of application. It is not unskilled. In other words, it stands out because of its skillful means. The distinction of Vajrayana is the many different skillful means. It's designed for those of very high capacity, which is why I've invited each one of you here tonight to this to this expedition. It's designed, uh, let's see, there's four... Sure. Sorry, yeah. could, could you just say again what what verse you're in or chapter verse? Because I didn't quite find. Uh, chapter nine, infection yeah. stages in the unity. I'm in verse two. Verse two. Sorry. Okay. The four tantra classes have been taught. So he's he's using the the traditional scheme of tantra that has four tantra classes, which are the action tantra and uh, conduct. Yoga and the unsurpassed Tantra. Some of you may be familiar with their Sanskrit terms for this Kriya, Charya, Yoga, and Anuttara Yoga. Kriya, K R I Y A, Charya, C H A R Y A, Yoga, just like Yoga, <laughs> and Anuttara, A N N U T T A R A. These classes correspond to all these different things. And this is this archaic system of Tantra, which doesn't have a whole lot of relevance to us because what, what's happened in the years that Tantra has evolved is uh, as part of its skillful means, they focused in on what's the most effective means for, for sentient beings in this time period, which is the highest uh, unsurpassed Tantra, the Anutra Yoga Tantra. We'll see that. We also focus on the type of birth that we have. But Lori has something to add. Oh, just a question that came to me. Um, so if, if, if you're doing Nundro, you haven't really gotten to these yet. Is that right? Like you have to get through all the uh, preliminary practices Nundro is in some way a way of uh, incorporating the three lower tantras of action, conduct, and yoga. That, that's okay. mm -hmm. what it seems to me. It's a, it's a sort of efficient way of incorporating those. Okay. Okay. Uh, Let's see if I can climb to that. <laughs> yeah. These things correspond to time, caste, or level of capacity, these three things. So... He goes through this uh, first scheme of uh, Buddhist cosmology that has these time periods during which different Tantra classes were prevalent. And I'll sort of skip through those. And then uh, they apply to the uh, caste systems of the Hindu-Indian tradition, and which also does not really 
uh, help us that much. Then they apply to people of different incapacities, the dull, the medium, the sharp, and the very sharp. And really, I should be in the dull uh, capacity, but because I'm very arrogant, I think I'm in the very sharp. And uh, I know that you guys are actually genuinely and appropriately in the very sharp. Okay, so here we go in uh, short little descriptions of of each of them, ritual cleansing and ablution, purification, is the action tantra. Uh, bodily and verbal conduct, mental meditation, all in equal measure. So balance of body and mind purification is the teaching of the conduct tantra. The yoga tantra teaches chiefly meditation and with bodily and verbal conduct taught as its ancillary. So there's a... Uh, Transition from initially focused on body practices and then body and, and mind and then mind practices. The great yoga tantra, however, uh, and he doesn't really say it, but that's similar to yoga tantra in that it focuses on the mind, uh, is devoid of all intended acts of body, speech, and mind. It's free from subject-object dualism and is the supreme training on the luminous nature of the mind itself. So focusing right in on the mind's nature. It is set forth for those who do not care for cleanliness. Now, don't mistake this and like stop washing your hands because you've got to wash your hands, okay? Action, conduct, yoga tantras are the tantras of austerity. Ooh. Sanskrit, they are Kriya, Upa. Now I give Charya. Charya and Upa are alternates. It sounds like I'm trying to cover my base, but I swear to you it's true. They constitute the outer tantras in which one does not meditate upon the father, mother, deities in union. So one of the big differences in them, the lower tantras, you never meditate on deities in union. One makes no use of the five meats and the five nectars, and ritual cleanliness is practiced. So one of the indications is that in the highest tantra, the unsurpassed Anuttara tantra, um, we in, uh, engage in the five meats and the five nectars. The five nectars are the five uh, liquids or amritas, and uh, the five meats are different types of meats. And so it's dealing with the five uh, the five uh, kleshas and uh, the five major kleshas and subsidiary kleshas and transforming them through uh, engaging in, in consuming meat and nectar. And uh, then we, we revel in filth as a way of getting beyond the sense of uh, dualistic view of there being clean and dirty. The highest yoga, yoga tantras are divided threefold. There's daddy, mommy, and the, um, sorry, I shouldn't joke around. There's father, mother, and non-dual, unsurpassed non-dual tantras. Respectively, they teach, they uh, chiefly teach the generation and perfection stages and their non-dual union. So father tantras, this is a sort of uh, a simplistic, that's oversimplification. That's that's it. Um, anyway, 
they're also known as Maha, Anu, and Ati. Now, you may have heard these terms and uh, that they are used in the Nyingma tradition for the inner tantras. And the, uh, the father, mother, and non-dual Anutra yoga tantras traditionally are used for uh, what's called the, the new tantra system. That's common in the new schools of Tibetan Buddhism. And when we say new schools, we mean those that were established in the 11th century onward by individuals such as Marpa, Virupa, and uh, Atisha, as opposed to the Nyingma, which started in the 8th century. So th these, uh, these match up. The Father Tantra is Maha, Maha Yoga, in the Hindu, in the sorry, Nyingma tradition, Mother Tantra relates to the Anu Yoga of the Nyingma and the non dual Tantra system of the Kagyus, let's say, and Sakya and Geluk relate to the Ati in some way. Here the deities appear in union, and particular Samaya substances are used, such as alcohol and meat. Between the pure and impure, no difference is observed trying to experience non-duality, one taste, beyond uh, conceptual structures. Uh, for all is said to be of but a single taste, the display of a single mandala. When practicing the Kriya Tantra, so he, here he goes through a little description of each, and how the relationship with the deity varies in each of the tantras. In the Kriya Tantra, the deity, deity is higher. and You take a lower place. So you visualize the deity way up above you. The mode is that of lord and subject. And thus accomplishment is gained through that system, that relationship. In the Charya Tantra, you regard the deity and yourself as equal, same level face to face. Yourself is this, uh, as what's called the Samaya Sattva, the being that's bound in Samaya, and the deity in front is the Shnana Sattva, the wisdom being. We are the Samaya Sattva, and the deity in front is the wisdom being, and we as the Samaya Sattva, the uh, being of uh, Samaya, commitment to the, to the practice and the view, and the, the uh, entire scheme of Tantra, and then uh, the in this practice, they're separate. In this mode of friend with friend, accomplishment is gained, such as sort of like buddies on the same level. In the main practice of the yoga tantra, no difference divides the deity from yourself. Yet in the preparation and conclusion phases, you must adopt a dualistic mode. Invite the deity and ask it to depart. When, like water, Pour into water poured the deity and yourself become non-dual accomplishment in the yoga tantra is gained. Maha yoga or father uh, anutra tantra yoga anutra yoga tantra rather the maha yoga emphasis is placed on skillful means stage of generation and the winds <clears throat> Father Tantra, male, masculine energy, skillful means. 
state of generation as the visualization or development stage practice of visualization of, of a mandala of a deity and that deity and so forth. And the winds has to do with uh, the pranas, the inner winds of that situation. And Anu Yoga, Mother Tantra emphasis is placed on wisdom, the perfection stage. Yeah, the understanding of uh, the nature of indivisible emptiness and luminosity. <clears throat> Together with the essence drops, the essence drops in Sanskrit are bindus. In Ati Yoga, the highest non-dual yoga, Tantra, everything is non-dual. Emphasis is placed on primal wisdom. In all these three, the practices performed within the knowledge that phenomena are all primordially pure from the start. Never, I'm sorry, primordially equal from the start. Never, uh, so this idea of the continuity of ground paths and fruition. Yourself and every being are from the outset perfectly enlightened. Therefore, bring to mind that aggregates, meaning skandhas, the elements, uh, the indriyas, uh, sorry, the, the elements, let's see, elements, I guess, would be uh, datus, sources are the ayatanas, and so forth, and those are the three skills, skandhas, datus, ayatanas, and so forth, are but a single mandala, and meditate on the two stages. From the Vajrayana, one of the skillful means, is, uh, which he indicates here obliquely, is that we uh, understand that our own psychophysical makeup is the arrangement of the mandala. Our skandhas, datus, and ayatanas are arranged within the mandala. The two stages are the development and completion stages, or, or uh, generation and perfection stages, as the translators call them here. And he affiliates these four tantras with the four ways of taking birth, which is, again, this old archaic system of tantra that doesn't have a whole lot of applicability, but we'll read through it quickly. There are four ways to meditate for, to purify the tendency for egg birth. So if you were a bird or something like that that was born an egg, at the start, you, uh, you would start by taking refuge, generating bodhicitta, and performing a short generation stage, generate a short visualization stage. You would invite the field of merit and make offerings. The field of merit is code language for all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and, sacred, and uh, uh, Sangha, enlightened Sangha beings that you can possibly conjure up in your imagination, bring them and then make offerings to them, then meditate upon their lack of real existence. Thus you gather the two accumulations. What are the two accumulations, by the way, anyone? Brent? Help me out here. What are the two accumulations? Isn't it merit and wisdom? Is that right, Brent? I think that's right. Thank you. Merit and wisdom. Uh, so... Um, the the uh, process of uh, refuge, bodhicitta, generation stage, and uh, inviting the field of merit, 
and make offering to them, says the accumulation of merit, and then understanding their um, empty nature, empty luminous nature is the accumulation of wisdom. Subsequently meditate on the extended generation perfection stages. So you do this twice. First there's a very quick one, and then there's a more extensive one. Just as there is first an egg from which a chick is born, meditate successively upon the generation and perfection stages first in short and then extended form. To purify the tendency to take on birth in a womb, which is us, <laughs> meditate successfully, successively rather, hopefully successfully too, in detail first on refuge, then on bodhicitta, then upon the seed letter that from emptiness appears. Seed letter, seed syllable we've heard about maybe. Uh, the idea is that form arises from emptiness first in the matter of sound, vibration. And so the first uh, um, appearance of form from uh, emptiness is sound. Sound is one of the five types of form, right? There's, there's uh, auditory forms, visual forms, olfactory forms, and so forth, right? All those are the types of form. And so the first appearance of form is sound. And, this, and, they, uh, and so every, every different phenomena, every being, has a uh, particular sound that they make when they first appear. You can you can listen for people like uh, in your family when they like come in. They each no, I'm kidding. Um, from this, from the seed syllable, then there comes the implement that then transforms into the body of the deity. So the implement is there's something that they hold in their hand, whatever that might be. Um, most most people these days have an iPhone. So like you could be born as like your your seed symbol would be the buzzer on your iPhone or whatever uh, ringtone you have. And then you're there with the, then the implement, just the, the iPhone appears. And then you're there holding the iPhone uh, into the body of the deity, protect, projecting rays of light. This way of meditating is not as previously preceded by brief generation and perfection stages, just a small nuance in case you were wondering. It's like the way the embryo develops in the womb and through the interaction of the wind mind, the prana mind, and the essence, the bindus, both white and red. There comes a spherical mass which length, lengthens and solidifies and passes through the other stages of uh, natal development until the body is completely formed and then it emerges from the womb. Going more quickly, so uh, then we have taking birth from warmth and moisture, which is like how insects, how they understood insects to come and be born. It's just like they didn't have microscopes. They couldn't see these like microscopic level of uh, activity. And uh, they just, they'd like had water on the ground or on the earth and then there would be bugs, you know. So it's like, how did that come up? Now, you know, if the sun shines on like a little pool of water or puddle, suddenly there's like worms and shit in it. So warmth and moisture. 
Uh, let's see the same thing, and uh, not much to note there. And then miraculous birth. Certain things they just couldn't explain, like uh, how do deities are born, or how, or uh, there's certain things they just couldn't couldn't figure. How did they? How were they born? Can I ask a question, Derek? Sure. Um, I I'm a little confused in this part because why would anyone ever want to be born as a like a worm? <laughs> you know? Your bodhisattva vow, you've taken a vow to, to, to enlighten all sentient beings. And so to, to, uh, to enlighten the worms, you have to be born among them as another worm. Ah, okay. And, and you know, along the way, uh, so that's like talking about intentional birth. But unintentionally, you may be born as an insect here and there. There's a lot more lifetimes right, right. for some of us. Got it. You're not you, but... <laughs> Although of these four ways to meditate, you should practice most the one relating to the womb birth you have taken. Meditate upon them all to purify the tendencies to other ways of being born. You know, somewhat it's just like uh, the notion that you would need to know how to do these because you're going to take birth there. It's like a stretch. It's just like it's it's this these tantras of different classes sort of came about, and then I, my belief is then they then they sort of impose this structure to try to explain why these different types of classes what their reasoning was. I don't know. It's debatable. Hey, Derek. Derek, can I continue this just real quick? Yes, yes, please. Ruff, ruff. I'm so sorry. Um, why does why is it put that way? I mean, in some ways, this is. Um, I get. Oh yeah, I guess it's matching different kinds of births. To yeah, I see your point. But to to say to purify the tendency, the way they put that to purify that tendency. Um. I guess it just means here's how to practice if you have that ten. I guess it's not, I shouldn't get too hung up on the wording there, but it's interesting to purify that tendency. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, the whole idea of Vajrayana practice is that we're purifying death process, the death and rebirth process. Whether that, ha whether we consider that to happen once per lifetime in the big way or every moment we're purifying the dissolution and re-arising process over and over again. Right. Right. Until we get it. So we don't have to live and die anymore until we're beyond that cycle. Right. We're bodhisattvas. So we are committing to come back, but, but uh, we come back intentionally and we can choose. Right. Oh, right. I want to be a praying mantis this time or, that's a good one. I like that. Don't they eat? Doesn't one of them eat the other? The female eats the male or something? Chomp, chomp, chomp. Okay. Something to look forward to. Uh, so I'm going to skip to 40, uh, 14. The perfection stage is of two types. It's twofold. Accompanied or unaccompanied by visual forms. So this is... 
referred to in different ways in different places. There's the completion stage, which here it's called perfection stage. Those two are uh, different translations of the same term, which is Dzogrim in Tibetan. Um, and uh, uh, it's either with elaboration or without elaboration, is, is often how this is referred to. Here he uses with form is with elaboration, and without form is without elaboration. Completely simple. When the visualization of the generation stage dissolves like clouds dispersing in the sky, you should remain within the state of emptiness devoid of visual forms. Thereby the generation stage, it should be understood as perfected and completed. Now we do this, um, most of you have done the Sadhana Mahamudra, is that right? So you have a little bit of a taste of a Sadhana practice, which is what these are all descriptions of. And uh, in the mantra section of the Sadhana Mahamudra, there's a, a point in the, in the italics, the description where it says, everything turns into lights and shimmers and, and then uh, dissolves. And it's not that clear, but there's supposed to be a gap at the end of, of that dissolving process after the mantra has become silent. And that's the completion stage. And then you re-arise and uh, enter into the, the, uh, the next section of the sadhana. Uh, let's see, but in the very moment that appearances occur, their nature is beyond conceptual construction. Meditating on this undistractedly is the perfection stage with visual form. So once you've experienced the dissolution process of the generation stage thoroughly, then the rearising with forms uh, is not a matter of leaving the perfection stage. Uh, let's see. Assisted by the practice without visual forms, beginners halt their clinging to the generation stage. So this idea that these two types of practice have a sort of purpose, like a balance, a harmony. This is the antidote to clinging to phenomena as real. So we visualize the deity and maybe we begin to think that the deity is real. So we practice the dissolution, the completion stage to disperse the sense of reality of it. Assisted by the practice using visual forms, those who have stability in meditation halt or clinging to the perfection stage. <clears throat> this is the answer. This, this is the antidote to clinging to the reality of emptiness. So not dwelling in either extreme by um, alternating these two types of practices. Hereafter, all appearances, the generation stage, or which is skillful means and the mind that's free from clinging, the perfection stage or wisdom, all become at all times indivisible, which is the objective is to, to experience those two stages as indivisible. Therefore, clinging to the true existence of appearances is halted by the generation stage. So uh, going back to generation stage, you and I, uh, I know I do, but um, and I'm pretty sure you guys do, but 
I know I cling to this form, this appearance with gray hair that's very long now, and uh, this I, this sense of being like this physical body. I, I cling to that as being real. And by visualizing myself as uh, the Buddha, I can help to disperse that that uh, false sense of being this person. While thoughts that cling to them as being illusions are dispelled in the perfection stage. So if I if I make the mistake of believing in emptiness and like getting sucked into this view of thinking that I'm unreal, then we uh, we dispel that through the perfection stage where there's no further clinging at all. Uh, when there's no further clinging to um, to the true existence of appearance and emptiness, the generation perfection stages are thereby inseparable and pure. This is this then is the final vehicle of Vajrayana, whereby those of highest capacity, high capacity, achieve enlightenment in but a single lifetime. Here's his little summary and his pitch. Mark the pitch, by the way. And afterward, wherever there are beings to be trained in all the world, their enlightened deeds and all their great varieties spontaneously unfold. Having completely uh, accomplished these two stages of Vajrayana practice, this then is the short and hidden or secret path of great profundity of all the holders of the Vajra. Those of the Vajrayana are all past numbering, numberless holders of the Vajra. It is the path adopted by the fortunate who wish for liberation in this very lifetime. Any of you guys want to get enlightened this lifetime? Just wondering? Anybody out there? No, not at this time. We got one. I got one. <laughs> On the basis of the practice of whichever tantra class to which you tend is perfect but a hood achieved. First, you must receive transmission of the blessings, permission for the practice, empowerment, and so forth, according to each scripture. As each scripture or tantra stipulates, these will then bring the mind to ripeness. So there's this uh, idea that you have to be properly introduced into these practices and uh, according to the, the specified ritual. You can't just you know pick up a book and on Tantra and uh, do it on your own. Especially the path of the great yoga, the Anutra, secret and supreme, consistent for empowerments which ripen. So there's this idea that empowerment ripens. It ripens our state of being. It, what does what it ripen? It ripens our Buddha nature. Our Buddha nature is there dormant. And in order to like wake up our Buddha nature, we we have empowerment, and it brings it to ripening. It's the fruit that is not yet ripe; it's unripe, and so empowerment makes it ripen, but it's not then completed. So the the term ripening is a little bit misleading. It it, it really means that it makes it ready for actually um, uh, engaging in the path by virtue of empowerment. So he goes through these four empowerments. Let's see. By the vase, so these are the empowerments, the vase empowerment, the secret empowerment, the wisdom empowerment, and the word empowerment. Now, when he says, 
and the word empowerments. So the word empowerments, the plural helps you out. These are, uh, by virtue of these four empowerments, we purify respectively body, speech, mind, and lastly, all habitual tendencies. Again, a sort of over, a, a great simplification of what these four empowerments each do. Um, uh, and all habitual tendencies and all accomplishments, uh, and thereby all accomplishments are granted. The gathering of merit is, a, is completed through the first three empowerments. The accumulation of merit, while well, the fourth completes the accumulation of wisdom. The veils deriving from defilement and the cognitive conceptual veil. These are the two veils to enlightenment. The two obscurations to enlightenment are uh, defilements or klesha. We, we usually use the Sanskrit and the cognitive conceptual uh, veil, ignorance, true ignorance, are also cleansed. Through these. Therefore, you should take the four maturing empowerments and train in both the generation and perfection stages whereby freedom is bestowed. When all these four are received completely in the Samaya pledge you possess, so Samaya is, is the vow of Vajrayana. We have in the Hinayana the refuge vow, then we have the Bodhicitta vow, and the Mahayana and the Vajrayana we have the Samaya vow. And the Samaya vow is the commitment to sacred vision, sacred view experiencing the world as as the uh, the realm of the dakini uh, sorry of the of the mandala of the deity let's see wishing then to implement the, the wisdom of the non-dual ati yoga for those of us that do so here are the instructions and he, then he gives instructions on how to practice this so he gives like a instructions on a sort of basic uh, but um, also sort of one and all, all accomplishing uh, profound type of Vajrayana practice that is simple and quick and includes everything. Sit cross-legged upon a pleasant seat. I like that. Take refuge, cultivate bodhicitta, and then from within the state devoid of all conceptual construction. So clear your mind as we do in the, uh, Tonglen, we flash at absolute bodhicitta, and, uh, and we experience where phenomena are empty without self. And then there appears the, the syllable, the seed syllable, and he's giving the seed syllable hung, which will be the seed syllable of the deity that he's going to introduce soon. And then from this and all around, above and below, and all the four points in their intermediate directions, so the eight, four cardinal, and intermediate directions, that makes eight, there emanates a vast protective wheel on whose ten spokes are standing ten ferocious deities. Anybody know what the missing two spokes are? I went through eight of them, four cardinal directions and four intermediates. What are the other two? Is it above and below? Up and down. Bingo. He calls them the, uh, the nadir and the, oh, what's the other one? Anyway, on these ten spokes are ten ferocious deities. Whoa! All of a sudden, things got a little hairy, huh? Outside and within, in one great mass of blazing fire. 
So on the edge of the spoke is a blazing fire. On the end, edge of the wheel, rather, is blazing fire. Is the great mandala of glorious Samantabhadra. This whole thing is the great mandala of Samantabhadra. This who's the this deity in this particular practice? Who's Seat Sobolo's home? The palace of this deity is four squares, one on top of another, four layer, four squares. Uh, layered squares. It has four doors, one for each direction, each furnace with cornices. Its walls are five layered, representing the five skandhas, the five Buddha natures, the five Buddha families, are surrounded by a ledge and are surrounded by a plinth. I don't know what the hell a plinth is. Does anybody know what a plinth? Anybody look up a plinth? Good. Tell us later. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, let's see on which the goddesses of the sense pleasures are dancing. Uh, beautiful with traceries and pendant strings of jewels. It has a cover terrace and a balustrade. Isn't that cool? On the, on the, there's a, he didn't mention really, but there's a roof, which has a plinth, I guess, is the edge of the roof. Uh, all around and on that, there's deities uh, dancing, goddesses dancing, and... Uh, there's a terrace and a balustrade. So in other words, there's a rooftop bar. Its domes surmounted with a jewel and a vajra in the top and the middle. In the center of this mandala, encircled by eight great charnel, eight charnel grounds. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? From the sauna. Our thrones upheld by loaded lions, horses, and peacocks, elephants, and... Anybody look up what's a shangshang bird? No? Is it a Garuda bird? Same thing? I don't know. Check out your Audubon book. Find out what a Shang Shang bird is for next week. Here on Lotuses and Sun and Discs of Sun and Moon are the Buddhas of the five families in union with their consorts. Likewise, there are our Bodhisattvas, male and female, eight of each, cardinal and intermediate directions. At the four doors are the eight uh, guardians, father and mother. Those together with the six Munis, there's six Buddhas for each of the six realms, all in their respective stations, variously cute or perfectly equipped with their respective ornaments and implements. The rays of light that stream from them are limitless and fill the whole space. So this quick little visualization of the usual Vajrayana mandala, just in case you're unfamiliar with this. This is your introduction to Vajrayana. Elizabeth Green? Um. Are mandalas discs or spheres? Mandalas is the whole thing is mandala. Everything that he just described is is in the mandala. So the mandala is the the uh, interrelationship of of different aspects in a, in a sort of organized chaos. As well as, as uh, you know, what you're thinking of, there you see pictures of mandalas and their their discs or squares. But whenever, by the way, whenever you see like a painting of a mandala, which I think most of us have seen, and it's all this geometric stuff and colors and really cool, those are top-down views. They're always like looking top-down. And so mandalas are actually three-dimensional. They're places. You know, there's a palace, there's all these people in it. 
So you, you take that flat image and turn it sideways and then look at it. And that's what's going on from the side view. He's describing, you know, the 3D version. Every once in a while, there's, there's very few places, and, but every once in a while you find a place that has a three-dimensional mandala. If you ever get a chance at some sort of museum to see a three-dimensional mandala, you've got to check it out. It's a very cool thing to see because normally you see that are two-dimensional mandalas. Does the Tibet House have one in their gallery? It might. I don't remember. Um, the one on 15th Street. I think they have one in their gallery. Maybe. Cool, cool. Check it out. In the heart of the main deity. Now, deities don't have hearts, by the way. It's not that they're heartless, but they're luminous, empty beings. So when he says in the heart, he's talking about the center. Good. Just clarify that. This, uh, and who's the main deity, by the way? That was Samantabhadra. Thank you. So, in the heart of Bhadra is Samantabhadra. It's another one, and it's hard. Joined in union with his consort. There are the Mandala's foundation, adorned by the major and minor marks of Buddhahood. He is like space, unstained, dark blue, sits cross-legged. Imagine him the size of your thumb, so he's a little small. Seated in a sphere of life and then lights radiate and purify phenomenal existence, the universe and its inhabitants. This is a stock phrase, the universe and its inhabitants. And we see this in the Sabe, environment and its inhabitants. All becomes completely pure, the sphere of male and female deities. Recite the three syllables and those of the five families that recite the mantra of all these different deities. Although resounding, they are empty, like an unborn echo, the mantras. He's talking about rest then in the state of suchness, uncontrived. Primordially, here's, uh, here's the result. What happened here? Primordially, your mind is of the nature of the deity. Just saying. Your body is a mandala, your speech secret mantra beyond exertion all is perfect the condition of sublime primordial wisdom the samaya and the jnana sattvas are inseparable now some of this you can look most of this you can learn all this stuff from the profound tragedy of the ocean of dharma volume three indestructible truth or whatever, what is it called um can't remember anything tonight anyway that third volume you can read all this stuff in there. There's tantra classes and stuff. So I'm not giving away anything that you guys already have access to. Check it out. It's my sawfish, not a sawfish. There's no invocation of the latter and no merging with it. So in some sadhanas, there's this idea of uh, the main deity is the jnana, is the samaya sattva that we've taken Samaya to uh, visualize ourselves as. And then we visualize this, the real thing, so to speak, the Jnana Sattva sort of comes floating in. And then we have that merge into us and sort of then we're the real thing. And But in the highest, very highest Tantra, there is no need for that process to happen. Question the Sadhana Mahamudra, there is no 
Somalia software. Yes, okay. A question. Earlier, you, we were talking about the question of what is ripening, and you were talking about, you know, from the point of view of ripening Buddha nature. But, and I was wondering, and then this sort of brought it up again, that is it the view, though, in Vajrayana is actually that the Buddha nature is fully present, not just seed, right? It is. And, and in a sense, this is also restating that same thing, that, that Buddha nature, you know, that you are this, your nature is no other than the deity and all of that sort of thing. Yes. So in that sense, is, is ripening more like just sort of in some way preparing or assisting us in being able to recognize that? Yes, that's a good way of putting it. It's ripening that understanding, that view. That's good. Thanks. And we um, I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering why, um, why the Vajrayana is not taught like more openly the way, you know, the Mahayana is taught. Why is it sort of more secret, I guess? Is the word. It's complicated and advanced and easily uh, uh, distorted. Misunderstood. Misunderstood. Spiritual materialism, ego. Uh, one can easily go astray. You know, this idea of uh, continuity of ground paths and fruition, but in nature spontaneously present. I guess my, my question is more not that um, it's not that uh, you're introduced to the practices, but just introduced to the general sort of what we're doing now, the general outline, the general concepts more into more as a uh, not as a practitioner but as a just given the outlines of it you know it's a good question Trump Rinpoche actually taught a lot of Vajrayana a lot of his public seminars were Vajrayana in nature um, but but what's happened is that um, sort of from a, a matter of uh, limited uh, limited time and availability of teachers and students. We've sort of all sort of uh, conformed to this system of uh, the recognition that to genuinely understand and practice Vajrayana, you need a, a, a tremendous grounding in Hinayana and Mahayana. And, um, and, and a lot of that is based on this recognition that Trump Rinpoche was like totally of a different order, obviously, than any of us other teachers. And so his ability to sort of embody and transmit Dharma, you know, far, so far exceeded that of any of us other teachers that we all very much are, are hum we try to be humble and follow a much more gradual way of presenting the teachings to students and um, you know we've also seen a lot of screw-ups in mm -hmm. Vajrayana communities and uh, and uh, I think most of us would agree that they are by and large because there's not not been enough foundation for both isn't it sort of also the, the, the it's almost like a samaya of not teaching the inappropriate things to inappropriate people that aren't ready and things like that. Well, Rimshay had that samaya and he taught openly 
Oh, no, no. Well, okay. And, uh, but I think the question, I guess also you're taking on a certain kind of karma if you do it. Right. And, you know, he had much more capacity for that right. and doing it skillfully than we do. I think that's what more, what I meant to say was that you're, you're taking on a certain karma by teaching things. Um, yes. You're opening up a certain energy and a certain relationship and a commitment between teacher and student and, and assuming that the teacher has the ability to effectively undermine egotism as it arises in trying to understand Vajrayana prematurely or incorrectly. Um, but, I, you know, at the same time, I, I agree with you. It, it is. And that's why I, I agree to, to do the Vajrayana sections of this, that it's helpful to give people some understanding of it here, here and there beforehand and as they go throughout their path. So it's not like some complete unknown. And, and you know, after five years of study and practice, finally the curtain opens. And <laughs> uh, But there's certainly enough books on it available, including those by Trump Rinpoche. There's many. But it's an interesting point. Thanks. Let's see. Um, and because uh, Samaya and Janana uh, Safras are inseparable, there's no invocation of the latter, no merging with it, no need to ask the deity to depart. There's no good or bad, no taking or rejecting. Uh, the primordial mandala has always dwelt within you. Remember this. So next week I'm going to ask you, what were you supposed to remember? Remember this and know it as your true condition. What are you supposed to remember? The primordial mandala has always dwelt within you. You're not creating something that was not already there. That's a very important point with Vajrayan, because we're not conjuring up some other existence or other way of being that is not already there. Very important to remember that. In conclusion, if you're attached to it, dissolve the visualization gradually, let go of it. And free of all fixation, rest without conception in the perfection or completion stage. If you have no clinging to the visualization, then remain within the understanding that everything is but illusion, like the moon reflected on the water, and dedicate your merit to all beings. Outside of meditation, in the Vajrayana vehicle, in your day-to-day -day activities, take everything as an illusion, clear yet empty, which is the same as Mahayana. Appearances and sounds are deities and mantra. That's a little different. Thoughts and memories are primal wisdom. They, oh, they agree at that point. At every instant, recognize them thus without distinction, distraction. So the difference between Mahayana and Vajrayana in this little summary is appearance and sound are deities and mantra. So skillful means, uh, Lori. So I wondered if this verse is this does this relate to the idea of sacred world? He's summing up sacred world. The whole thing was a very long description of sacred world. Every little part of it, including the plinths. Oh, okay. That's that's part of the sacred world too. Yeah. I just met. Okay, so sacred world is in the practice and. When you're not practicing and just living your, it's all. Of course it is. Yeah. I mean yeah. that is that's obviously more 
that's sacred. Right, that's sort of obvious sacred world. But then outside of practice, viewing everything as an illusion, clear but empty, appearance and sound as deities and mantra, thoughts and memories as primal wisdom, as sacred, sacred view, sacred world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I appear and he runs through the different, the, the Samaya, the lists of Samayas, very sort of summary and uh, unclear fashion. He doesn't go into any detail, but there's root and branch Samayas. And the main root Samaya is sacred view, sacred outlook, which he just explained in verse 28. The five and 20 branch Samayas are five groups of five. So there's 25 branch Samayas in five groups of five. The five things that should be known, the five things not to be spurned, the five things to be performed, and the five things to be accepted, and the five things on which to meditate. In brief, there are three root Samayas, those of body, speech, and mind. Very simply, the root Samaya of the body is to view the body as the deity, the body of the deity. The samaya of speech is to view one's speech as mantra, and the samaya of mind is to view all thoughts as dharmakaya, primal wisdom, the essence of sacred world. At the, and then, and then uh, tantras have, usually have times within the lunar calendar where you're supposed to do certain practices, so he runs through that in a similarly uh, summarized fashion, the full and new moon on the 8th and 29th days of the month as well as on the 10th days of the waxing and waning moon, by day, by night, respectively, labor and the practice of approach and accomplishment. Approach and accomplishment are uh, another term for the, the these two types of uh, development stage practice, confessing and restoring, offering the sacred feast. So uh, those of you that maybe were around the Shambhala Center before it lost its lease, you might have seen posted on the schedule this thing, like every once in a while there was a feast, and you're like, what are we like doing? What What is that thing when people like go to f these carnivals and like dress up in like King Arthur stuff and and like pretend they live in the Middle Ages and have, you know, it's like, are you guys into, you know, like Star Trek conventions. Or... I you're talking about Renaissance fairs. That's what you said. <laughs> <laughs> right. So what are these feasts? So in the Vajrayana, there's this ritual way of, of eating and celebrating sacred world that involves eating and drinking food and drink. And it's called a feast. <laughs> it's like this, this uh, way of transmuting the, the, uh, the sort of conventional gluttonous attitude that one might have to towards a feast into uh, and in, uh, this sort of sacred world type practice. So we use this odd term of feasting. Persistently observe the deep and crucial points pertaining to the yoga of the wind, mind, channels, and essence drops, the prananadi and bindu, so the inner body mandala, and make of it the very essence of your practice. It's a very sort of uh, oblique reference to the inner yoga practices, which are the completion practices with form, which is the most secret of all Vajrayana practices. And uh, he doesn't does not go into detail. Uh, meditate upon the paths of bliss, luminosity, and no thought 
that triad that we see within uh, this system and within uh, the, the meditation system of bliss, luminosity, no thought, these three experiences and their union. And thus you will become a Vajra holder and a perfect Buddha in this very life. Thus through this supremely secret essence unsurpassed, may every being dwell within the city of the glorious Haruka. Haruka city. <laughs> Where do you live? I live in Haruka city. Exhausted in samsara through their karma and defilement, may their minds today find rest. So, you guys tired yet, or should we go through the the three aspects of meditative concentration? Any uh, preference? Eileen, what do you think? <laughs> you happen to be on the top left on my screen. You're like right there. I would like what to about what about the path stainless meditative concentration? Yeah, where where is that? That's the number two. Uh, Page one twenty-seven. Did I skip that? We only just went through the generation and. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh wow! Okay, it's. The stainless meditative concentration is 127 to 41. Wow. Would you guys, would you guys mind spending another two and a half, three hours tonight? No problem. No problem. I'm, I'm done. I'm cooked. I have a curfew. <laughs> Just add more weeks. We'll add another week. How about let's do this. Let's go through the three aspects of meditative concentration. That's uh, no, the three concentrations of the generation stage from the commentary. That's only two pages. How's that? 253 to 55. Is that a yes? Good. (laughs) Okay, everybody there, 253. Three concentrations. No, no, not yet. Wait, wait, what's the title of the chapter? The three concentrations of the generation stage, and it comes after refuge. Oh, okay, got it. Thank you. Yep. Sorry. No stand numbers in the commentary, unfortunately. So here he, he gives a, a description of this, this uh scheme that's common in the Nyingma, Dzogchen, or uh, a higher Tantra system of Enigmas for um, how to understand the arising of the deity, how to understand the arising of of what one visualizes in development practice in this three-phase process that's very famous and very profound. First one should perform the preliminary practices what would the uh, the preliminary practices be? He describes them for us. Seated, seated cross-legged on a comfortable seat, one should imagine that one's teacher, the Yidam deities, and the deities of the mandala are present in the sky in front of oneself. One should take refuge in them. 
three times and then generate the attitude of bodhicitta, reciting three times the formula, taking from the net of precious peaceful deities, all endless beings like myself or Buddhas from the very first knowingness to be so, I give rise to the intention for supreme enlightenment. One then recites the Swabhava mantra, which is the mantra of emptiness. So uh, we just like flashing bodhicitta, ultimate bodhicitta, we, we experience emptiness. And recall that phenomena are established in the state of great emptiness through that mantra. This refers to the concentration of suchness. So first, we just uh, rest in, in emptiness. And which one should train as follows. It's said in, the, in this uh, text, Home in nature of the pure mind of enlightenment is a state that from the first is unborn, all-pervasive, endlessly profound, non-abiding, unobservable, beyond the mind's construction. It rests completely in equality beyond all thought and word. Beautiful description of the emptiness, the understanding of the profound nature of the ultimate truth. It is also said in the Haruka Gyalpo, Great space, the Dharma Dhatu is beyond imagining. The space of ultimate reality is free from all conceiving. Ultimate reality, the vast and inconceivable expanse, is devoid of reference like space itself. It's necessary to perform the suchness concentration because it provides the causal connection for the arising of the Rupakaya from the Dharmakaya. It's a very subtle point of like. Why does the Rupakaya of a Buddha ever arise from the formless Kaya of the Dharmakaya of a Buddha? Why would that form body ever come come out of the formless body? For the benefit of beings? That's it. it um, so it, it's said to arise by two causes. One is one's previous aspirations, commitments to Bodhisattva activity for the sake of all sentient beings and the need of sentient beings and uh, their uh, readiness to receive teachings. And so the causal samadhi by practicing this, this uh, such rather, sorry, suchness samadhi, we're helping, uh, we're helping create that karmic momentum that when we become a Buddha will result in our rupakaya arising from our dharmakaya. Uh, let's see, since all the visualizations that follow are in this way associated with the great perfection of primordial emptiness, the knots of clinging to entities and their characteristics will be untied. It said in this text, the stages of the path by a teacher, because of emptiness, all paths are free of attributes, fixations of self-clinging, all subside. Afterward, in order to untie the knot of one-sided clinging to emptiness, one must practice the all-illuminating concentration. So you, you do these two, the first two are sort of uh, purifying two potential, uh, two ways of uh, understanding the ultimate nature so that they're in harmony, so that you don't um, go to any of the two possible extremes in understanding the true nature. Uh, let's see, within a state of illusion like compassion, 
one should meditate for a while on the self-arisen and self-cognizing primordial wisdom which is luminous and devoid of all fixation. So first one meditates in the suchness samadhi which is the empty, emphasizes the empty nature of ultimate truth and then when one uh, meditates in the uh, all illuminating concentration that that emphasizes the luminous compassion side of ultimate truth. Pretty cool system. Uh, as it say, it's said in that same text, the meditation on the king, and the king is a, a epithet for awareness, self-cognizing awareness. It's called the king. Sort of like uh, uh, the way that you might refer to famous singer, rock star, what was his name? Elvis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Supreme enlightenment is found. Suchness, once it's been seen, becomes the ground for the arising of compassion. Beautiful. Certainly it's in this order that it manifests. Suchness, compassion. Finally, there comes the concentration on the cause the cause for the arising from these two. This is twofold. First is the visualization of the circle of protection. In the infinite expanse of space from the syllable home, there appears a blazing mass of fire in which there arise from the syllable brum, a wheel, or rather a sphere consisting of a hub or rim or surface and ten spokes. The empty space inside the hub represents the Dharmadatu on each of the ten spokes. There's lotus and disc of sun and moon marked with the syllable hum. These transform into humkara on the vertical spoke at the zenith, vijaya on the eastern, iladanda on the southern, yamantaka on the southern spoke, oh, the southeast, akshobi on the southwest, ayagriva on the west, apara Aparajita on the northwest, Amrita Kundali on the northern spoke, and Trilokya Vijaya on the northeast spoke, and Mahabala on the vertical spoke at the nadir. Well, nadir. Each of these deities has one face and two arms, wears a kilt. I like that translation. The kilt of tiger skin. And is bedecked with snakes. <laughs> bedecked. Bedecked, you. Uh, with right leg bent and right and left leg outstretched, they all hold the attribute indicating their aligned family, whatever that appropriate attribute is, that hand implement. Uh, let's see, where the hell was I? Uh, or else Vajra and Bell, that's sort of the universal attribute. The two wrathful deities of the Zenith and the Nader both belong to the Tathagator, but a family. They are dark blue and hold a wheel. Wrathful deities to the east and the southeast belong to the Vajra family. They're gray and hold a Vajra. Those in the south and southwest belong to the Jewel or Ratna family. They are dark yellow and hold a Jewel. Those in the west and northwest are of the Lotus family or Padma. They're dark and red. And they hold an eight-petal lotus. Those in the north and northeast are of the Karma family. They're green and hold a crossed Vajra. Whether or not one visualizes the palace or not, the main concentration of the causal samadhi, the cause samadhi, consists in a brief meditation on oneself as the main deity, the cause haruka, 
which then dissolves into emptiness. In the present context, the concentration on the cause refers to the meditation on the seed syllable from which the main deity is generated. So that's a little glimpse into the three samadhis of the Nyingma tradition. That last one being the causal samadhi is where you uh, concentrate on the empty nature of the seed syllable in that way. Any final comments? Questions? Uh, yeah, no. You wanted to know what a plinth was? Is the Oh, but Liz knew. Let, let, oh, oh, okay. Pretty known. What was the plinth? Is that like what the pilgrims came over on or where they landed? Oh, a plinth is a platform. Thank you. Generally. In, in very most simple terms, in cabinetry, gotcha. you often put cabinets on a plinth. Uh, so that they stay up. So that there's a toe kick. Oh, I see. So that they are level. Yeah, yeah. Cabinets are level even if the floor is not. Oh, got it. Thanks. I like the toe kick thing too. Anyway, uh, Henrietta. Uh, I just wanted to say that um, this all sounds very serious. Like the tone, you know, is very heavy and serious. And I'm just wondering if that's very humor. I thought I was being pretty light about no, it. No, I know. And that, that sort of brought up the contrast for me. Uh, <laughs> It's not somber. It's delightful, isn't it? No. Ah, okay. So that's. I guess that that's my question: is the tone, you know? Well, it does have an aspect of sort of heaviness, of like, of uh, you got to not mess with it, because it it has this ability to unleash uh, tremendous exaggeration of uh, energies. And if you do it in a in a in a cavalier, arrogant way, you can unleash great arrogance and egotism, as uh, as has unfortunately been seen too often. And so it has this heavy seriousness of like uh, secrecy and samaya and and necessity of transmission and keeping. Uh, vows and doing things properly and it's very important because it's uh, it's you know when everything is empty in the in the Mahayana things are a little bit lighter it's just like there's emptiness and then there's within that you have the paramitas and this selfless activity and yeah you're, you're right Vajrayana definitely has a much heavier feeling than, than the Mahayana that sort of celebratory mm. quality of the Bodhisattva and emptiness and Bodhicitta, the celebration of being part of the Buddha family and so forth. And Vajrayana's like, whoa, watch out where you're walking, you know? What did you say? <laughs> what, did you, what did you think? All thoughts are Dharmakaya. Remember that. <laughs> so, yeah, you got to tiptoe carefully into Vajrayana. Right. Very good point. Yes, Isabel. And I find so... Uh interesting and difficult a little bit with Vajrayana is that you know we're always like wanting to connect with emptiness but we have all these very elaborated descriptions and all these details and these 
eight and four and five and six of this and it's like on and on forever and it's all empty <laughs> so it's so crazy that's a great concept, actually that uh the idea is that in is that there's a potential uh, simplification that we might experience in our attempt to understand emptiness in the Mahayana, thinking that empty, emptiness has this sort of very um, uh, spacious quality to it. And then when we're like, uh, and then when we encounter the complexity of day-to-day -day life and all the different uh, forms and emotions and things that we encounter in just you know an hour of life on uh, on this planet, it makes emptiness sort of difficult to experience. So the idea with Vajrayana is to use that skillful means of, uh, if you can in, in meditation and visualization have this huge level of complexity and still see that as empty, then when you encounter the variety of phenomena of the of the relative world you have a better a chance of experiencing that as empty and not as uh, not get caught up what what destroys uh under uh, sort of uh um the cultivation of meditation on emptiness is the recognition of the variety of characteristics of phenomena we don't notice it that much because we're so we're so in our conceptual minds, but at the more advanced stages of understanding emptiness, they talk about just the uh, the experience of the differing characteristics of phenomena, colors, shape, sound, uh, space, time, all these different things trigger in our mind. Our mind is constantly labeling, categorizing, everything it encounters and the way it encounters separating phenomena is by their aspects so while our our conceptual mind may be projecting a sense of emptiness and and seeing the illusory nature our subtle subconscious mind is registering all these different phenomena constantly and and our our so our subconscious like alia mind is continuing to reify in a very solid way, our experience of the world. So Vajrayana is like going down, let's go down into that Aliyah Vishnana and like really work with that, that scheme that's going on in the Aliyah Vishnana, where there's all this, this different characteristics of phenomena that we think are different things, this colors and shapes and objects and all this stuff. Just so, like everyday life then. Yeah, you open your eyes and it's like, whoa. <laughs> and we, and uh, yeah, so that's the idea. So thank you. That's a, that's a really good point. Thank you. And so uh, as you progress, the, the visualizations get more complicated. And uh, yeah. Is, is there also, that's a, that's a great description of, of one aspect. Is there also the aspect of just using that complexity for those who are attracted to a complexity as a way of exhausting the mind, the conceptuality of mind also? Yes, yes that's definitely part of it. That's definitely a big aspect of the skillful means of Vajrayana. It's exhausting the mind. 
It's mean. Que eu sou means or mean. Skillful <laughs> means. Uh, that's good. Mean skillful means. <laughs> that's good. I never, never heard that. That's really. Uh, shall we close with our uh, dedication for this merit? Now, the wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, sickness and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings by the, by the confidence of the golden sun, the great ease. May the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings. Brilliant. Glory. Glory. Stay safe, stay healthy and sane and help, help this world as much as you can. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye, everyone. Thank you, Derek. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Derek. Thank you, Emily.